You are not yet schooled in the power of network effects, young Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) We'll cut that. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 14 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions that actually went well. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. We have a very special episode for you today. I can't really think of a time when I didn't call it a very special episode. Every episode is special, Ben. It's true. Um, This episode is not necessarily about a technology acquisition that actually went well. Um, We have no idea how it went. Uh, It is huge and it is recent. Today, we are talking about LinkedIn being acquired by Microsoft two days ago uh, at the time of uh, the time of recording and um, super speculative. But I think the whole Internet is sort of a buzz with, you know, what's the deal with this, this acquisition? Why did they do it? You know, what's the future hold? And I think it's going to be super interesting to speculate a little bit and um, throw out some possible paths and, and um draw some conclusions yeah we're gonna have some fun with this we i don't think we've ever gotten as many requests on slack and no email and other channels for no please talk about linkedin so yeah. here we are and in fact i think um this may change the timbre of what this show is about i think for the you know at some point here we might rename this to just a show about tech acquisitions because we're doing things that didn't go well things that yeah, didn't go right. well um really inter- anything that's got a good story So we love stories here. We do. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there. That's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus, to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation and product analytics yep so if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions you should reach out statsig.com acquired and as always there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners our huge thanks to statsig um, a little bit of uh, administrative before we dive in. Um, as usual, I'm going to ask, please review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference, and it what, it's what makes the show grow and tick. Um, share it on Twitter, Facebook, or even LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> as uh, Please share it on Microsoft LinkedIn whenever you can. Um, uh, for those of you who uh, we're, we, we get some questions, you know, I don't have, uh, I'm not listening on iTunes or I don't have an Apple device. Um, we're going to post this on Product Hunt. So uh, search for it on, on Product Hunt. We would love, uh, love an upvote there. 
Yes, please. Thank you as always. And, uh, and feel free to join the Slack group. It's really, uh, it's really awesome interacting with all you guys. We've got over a hundred people now and yeah, great discussion going on. So, um, if you want to, if you want to spend more time with Ben and David, join the Slack group. Yeah. We, uh, we want to do a little bit of follow-up. Um, there's been some news from our last couple episodes that, uh, we think are worth talking about for a, a minute here. Um, David, yeah, you want to talk, talk about Snapchat? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna add a. Uh, sometimes we'll have this, sometimes we won't. But a adding a section to the show on follow ups on previous shows. So uh, we'll we'll do this quickly. But first, um, from Snapchat, uh, big announcement uh, this week as well. Uh, ben Thompson, our, our favorite uh, our favorite Oracle uh, here on Acquired, uh, <laughs> <laughs> tweeted that um, uh, the the LinkedIn acquisition and WWDC were the second and third most important announcements of the week, <laughs> and that Snapchat launching their advertising API was the most important announcement of the week. Well, time will tell on that. Yeah, I think all we have right now is a, a press release to go off of, and it'll be super interesting to see uh, how advertisers and, and brands adopt that. Yeah, big uh, big profile in Adweek, though, um, talking about the launch of this API uh, and, um, and, and profiling the company. Worth reading. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and then the second follow-up we wanted to do is actually on instant articles as well. Ben had a fun experience this week. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, actually not sure if this is uh, an announced product or, or even maybe just like a relabeling of an existing one. But I, I tapped on what looked like a Facebook instant article this week, and uh, it expanded into a native ad unit. And um, it was something that was a super sleek experience to just, it had my email autofilled, my phone number autofilled, and it was a way for me to kind of join a, a waiting list for an upcoming product. And I'm, I think Facebook has always had this direct response capture type type ad unit, but it's really interesting to see them potentially expanding that um, that instant articles or, or instant ads umbrella to include these other things and having a real sleek experience with it. Yeah, so. and it's cool with both of these that, um, you know, the ad products and ad product teams don't get a lot of uh, airtime in tech uh, with companies, but um, especially, you know, social networks and tech companies, but um, really cool product innovations on, on both of these fronts. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. With that, want to dive in, let's dive in acquisition history and facts. So LinkedIn, I assume almost everybody listening to this episode is a member of LinkedIn, but um, let's go back to when it was started. If not, I'd like to invite you to join my professional network on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Spam your address books. Uh, we'll get to that. Okay, so um, LinkedIn, I think, I could be wrong on this, but I think was the very first um, uh, spin out, uh, not spin out, but um, progeny of the PayPal Mafia. Um, 2003 is that 2002 right? so uh paypal was acquired uh as we talked about several times ago um was acquired by ebay in july of 2002 and in december december 14th of 2002 to be exact less than six months later uh several former paypalers uh led by reed hoffman uh band together and they form a new company and they call it linkedin um, and they, uh, so they start in December and then they work really quickly and they launched an, launch an MVP very quickly. Uh, especially again, this is like pre AWS time. Um, they launched an MVP in May of 2003 and it is a social network and social networks are hot then. The, yeah, I think, uh, I remember reading the Facebook effect by David Kirkpatrick and in that book, he kind of talks about that there was a group of people that were in Silicon Valley that were super involved in a lot of tech products and realized that social networking was going to be the next big thing. And that, you know, this was totally under it, it, it explains their fast time to market because I think that, um, you know, with, with Friendster right around yeah, then. That's what I was going to say. Th th there's a, a group of ex PayPalers and other kind of close people that were like, you know, technology is finally in the right place right now where this is about to be huge and let's, let's get to it. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool that like there was this, um, uh, in, in Silicon Valley, this kind of like, uh, swelling of interest and, um, and building of, of social networks. Uh, and, you know, Facebook hadn't even been started yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Friendster was a super hot company. Um, they'd, uh, they just, they just, they had raised money from, uh, Benchmark and somebody else. I can't remember, but we're darling of Silicon Valley. Um, MySpace was 
and growing quickly. And Reed Hoffman and Mark Pincus both put money into Friendster, if I recall. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they start, they launch in May of 2003 and, um, they have a really interesting, um, interesting sort of bootstrapping mechanic for the network uh to get uh you know how do you start a a network from a cold start and that was the infamous and uh product of a lawsuit later on as as is a recurring theme on our show um the infamous scrape your address book and spam all of your all of your everybody in your email address book yeah and in a very funny kind of super foreshadowing or foreshadow-esque way, um, kind of reminds me of Microsoft. I mean, they did this thing that was, um, you know, sort of sneaky and maybe would earn them a lawsuit, and they sort of just did it knowing that the upside from doing this thing, you know, it would, it would, it would be huge, and it would be something where they would have to pay the price later. They got sued. I think it was a $100 million suit later on for, yep. for this but um, you know, once they had the network, they right? Had then that you, when you have the network, you know, and it's this is like a total recurring theme in network-driven technology companies. Like, you know, doesn't get talked a lot about these days, but it's on the internet. Like Airbnb totally did this, you know, off of Craigslist to bootstrap their supply network to start, and many, many other networks have done the same thing. And do you know about Microsoft's like price per core thing? We were talked about this on the show. I don't price, think so. Price per CPU. They basically put it when they were originally selling windows or maybe it was dos real early on they were um they had it in their sales contracts that they would make money for one copy of windows per core shipped by someone who entered an agreement with microsoft to sell windows at all so they basically squashed the competition because manufacturers realized oh, well, I'm paying for a copy of Windows whether I put it on here or not, yep. so I may as well ship Windows. And by the time, you know, they, they got sued for that, and, and they, I think actually the, the Justice Department forced them to pull that out of their, their contracts. Um, by the time that came around, they, you know, had already squashed the competition and were yeah. totally way out ahead. It's totally, you know, when you're facing a cold start pro- uh, problem as a network, you know, the chicken and egg problem, like... You can't, you know, you got to have something to, to some unfair advantage to get through it. You know, doesn't always have to be illegal, but uh, in many cases, <laughs> it turns out it was. Yeah. Um, so uh, late by late 2003, the network is starting to take off a little bit. It's still really early. Um, they raise a Series A from Sequoia, uh, $4.7 million, uh, which was a lot of money back in that day, especially after the internet bubble uh, had burst. Um, and uh, Mark Kwame joins the board. Uh, later, when he left uh, Sequoia, um, Mike Moritz uh, takes over and is still, to this day, I believe, on the board of LinkedIn. And Mark Kwame uh, is now in, in Columbus, Ohio, running yeah. Drive Capital. Exactly. Ben's hometown. Columbus, shout out. Shout out. Um and uh, and so things continue to go well. And in 2004, the next year, they raised their Series B from Greylock. And super cool. Uh, about two, I think about two years ago, um, much like uh, in, when we talked about with YouTube and through the lawsuit um, of YouTube, we were able to see Sequoia's investment memo about that. Uh, two years ago, Reed Hoffman open sourced, quote unquote, uh, his pitch deck for, for his Series B at Greylock. And it's this great document. We'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes. But he has the whole slightly edited uh, pitch deck that he used for LinkedIn Series B. Um, and then he has commentary on it. And, and he's like very self-critical. You know, it's like this was, you know, obviously this worked, but like it made a bunch of mistakes. And like I was really nervous about these things and trying to cover up like we had no revenue. Everybody was like the elephant in the room was like, why the heck do you guys not have revenue? And like I was like really nervous about that. Huh. Um, cool document. So um, in the pitch deck, you know, he... He kind of the the LinkedIn positions uh, they position it as like the the unbiased sort of you know ground source of source of truth about professionals um, and talk about how with all the existing ways of finding professionals in the world at that time like it was mostly kind of directory based and all these incentive problems and people were incentivized to make themselves look good or to um, you know be founded to do sales leads and there was nothing you know and they thought that a network could 
solve all of these incentive problems and create true, um, you know, for the first time, true uh, information publicly available on the internet about professionals and where they are and how to find them. And turns out they were right. <laughs> um, as we talk about this acquisition, you know, LinkedIn has never been primarily an advertising-based uh, network. They, they've uh, advertising-based business. They've had uh, ads as part of their business line, but most of their revenue comes from monetizing recruiters. Um, and so as people have been commenting about this acquisition, you hear lots of talk about like, oh, you know, LinkedIn doesn't have a lot of engaged users and I spend no time on the site and it looks like crap. Um, but you can't really judge this company in the same way that you judge Facebook or Twitter because it's not how they monetize. No. And, and Josh Elman has a great post that uh, I'll put in the show notes too. Josh is a, uh, he was at LinkedIn. Um, he's, he's been at a bunch of great companies and he's at, at Greylock now. And he has a great post talking about, you know, you can't look at this like, you know, are is you know are the users of LinkedIn really like X multiple more valuable? They're not that engaged. I mean, at, at the end of the day, they are able to monetize those users in a very different way because they sell an extremely uh, uh, high value product, which is yep. browse and access to these people. Yep, and um, and it, it's interesting. Later, we'll, we'll get in a minute to uh, LinkedIn's IPO, but actually in the IPO prospectus, they list in the risk factors, uh, quote, a substantial majority of members do not visit the website on a monthly basis, <laughs> which is funny when you compare them to you know many of the other businesses that we've looked at on this show. Um, but again, it's not, they don't make money when you visit the website. They make money from having your data, uh, up-to-date professional data about you on the system and, and you being found. So, so they build these business, these business lines over time, but there, there are three that LinkedIn has. Um, and the first is what they call talent solutions. And that's about 60% of their revenue. Um, and that is for recruiters. Um, and it's super, as Ben was talking about, I mean, this is a super expensive product that they sell to recruiters. The full product is $900 a month yeah. uh, per seat. And I think that the cheapest way to go to LinkedIn premium is like 600 bucks a year. It's a, it's a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. About 1200 a year. Yeah. It's, it, so think about that every time somebody contacts you and has the little uh, yellow in thing there. But as like, you know, they've completely, they have just knocked it out of the park and executing on this. Like if you are a recruiter operating in the HR world today, you need to have, you know, LinkedIn recruiter. Like it's just, there's, it's like a joke if you don't. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, you, <laughs> like let's imagine that you're a company and you haven't purchased this for your recruiting department you're not going to be able to hire any recruiters because they're, you know, they're going to be hamstrung from day one. Yep. So they've created this just incredible expectation in the market that that is a tables, table stakes tool to have. Table stakes. Um, and they've captured a ton of value in that market. Um, so then the other two business lines they have, they have other, the second one they call marketing solutions. And that is primarily ads um, that they show in various forms uh, on the site, um, whether it's sponsored in mail or, or, all sorts of things. And then the third one is premium subscriptions. So this is um, what they've spent a lot of time on over the last few years. Um, and that's monetizing um, monetizing members of LinkedIn who are not recruiters. Oh, so okay. you're separating. So LinkedIn premium is separate from their recruiting tools. Yes. And LinkedIn premium, uh, they're different flavors of it, um, but gives you access uh, to broaden out beyond your second degree network um, on LinkedIn. And that's great. Like as I mean, I use it all the time. I mean, is a is basically this tool was meant for venture capitalists, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and business development folks and sales folks, um, right. and uh, and that's about twenty percent of their revenue too. So, so um, and and that's about is it three billion a year in revenue? I think uh, total. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I actually did not look that up. Um, shut up. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. Um, and and that's a, a about one hundred and six million users. 106 million active users, uh, oh. just about 400 million registered users on the site. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is very interesting. So, um, so they continue. They execute super well uh, on on this as as a private company. Um, and and the sort of biggest event that they have before they go public is in 2000. Um, I believe it was 2007. Yep, uh, Reed actually steps aside as CEO. 
and they bring in an outside CEO to be uh, to run the company. Reed stays at the company day to day. A guy named Dan Nye. Um, so this isn't actually talked about uh, much. He he didn't stay very long. He he was there less than two years. Came from Intuit, and then he was at Advent Software. Um, he went on to become CEO of Rocket Lawyer, um, and uh, uh, which reminds me, a total. I found this doing research for the show. An aside, but really kind of hilarious. Um, when they raised their Series C, uh, which they did in uh, in January of 2007, right before this happens, um, they they raised Bessemer led it, but they also had this other firm that I hadn't heard of uh, in there called the European Founders Fund. And I was like, "What's the European Founders Fund?" And I looked it up, and it's the Samvar Brothers. Wait, we've talked about them before, right? They're, these are the the guys that run Rocket Internet. Rocket Lawyer made uh... me think of it um in uh in europe that you just copycat <laughs> all the u.s businesses and i was like this is just too funny the sambar brothers had a venture capital firm i don't know if it still exists called european founders fund so they're just copying wow. founders fund wow, wow. <laughs> just like they do with many other businesses hey, so, hey, hey man it works for them um so uh i was i just saw that and i was like that is too funny um so uh dan doesn't last very long as ceo but in december of 2008 uh they uh bring in jeff weiner and he is still today the ceo of uh of linkedin um and uh and so and even will be inside microsoft exactly yeah and they will remain so within microsoft um in january of 2011 uh the company finally files for an ipo they go public in may of 2011 um they price uh they price the ipo at 45 dollars a share it trades up to 94 dollars and 25 cents by the end of the first day of trading um and this was like i remember this was like a watershed moment at the time they were the first like sort of new wave you know internet company big internet company to go public um after the sort of mid 2000s um and it was shortly thereafter that facebook went public um that uh pandora went public that twitter went public um so this was this was a big moment and that everybody kind of realized that these social networks that you know were still you know people were like how does facebook make money you know even though facebook makes money in a very different fashion from linkedin um but when they when linkedin you know filed their prospectus for the ipo people were like man this business is going to do like 50 million in ebitda this year um so it was it was a big moment um and uh and so and then the stock uh continued to do really well for over the five ish years that it was public uh up into going up into the you know two hundreds and and above yeah till what feb february of this year until until february 5th 2016 just a few months ago was uh on a friday uh both linkedin and tableau announced uh fourth quarter 2015 um results and uh and expectations for the year to to wall street and it was like it was like Black Friday for software companies. Yeah, and it actually it, it killed the um, the private company valuation and some of the market cap of of other SaaS companies. Yeah. and it it felt like it was super sensationalized and not well understood by the market. Yeah, because what LinkedIn. So LinkedIn announced earnings. They actually beat expectations on earnings for the fourth quarter of 2015, mm-hmm. but they announced. Lower than Wall than guidance that was lower than Wall Street expected for 2016, and the stock got hammered. It was down 43.6 percent in a single day. Uh, Ten billion dollars of market cap just wiped out of LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean they basically were signaling that we are hitting the top of our S curve, and that you you can't count on this continued growth in the future, which had been priced into their stock. Yeah, yeah. And so I think you know while that core business was still strong, they they were looking for secondary revenue channels. With they, they had a display ads business that they had shut down a little bit earlier, or at least moved resources away from. And then there was a second product. Um, do you remember what that was called? That that was it was a uh, uh, lead um, sales navigator. Uh, well, a sales navigator they still have. Okay. I'm working on, but the growth the they expected huge growth in sales navigator, and it's been slower to materialize. We'll get into this, um, but. Um, but you know, at at one point, LinkedIn had a had a market cap of over fifty billion dollars, um, and uh, and between that and then and then following um, was just a you know fell off a cliff in terms of the stock price. Um, 
on that same day, similar thing happened to Tableau, um, which is a great software company here in Seattle. Um, and because of those two, um, those two, uh, the, 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 those two companies, you know, announcing weaker than expected earnings, the whole SaaS sector, public SaaS companies, just took a big hit. So, like on that, on the same day, on Friday, New Relic down twenty three percent, Zendesk down twenty percent, HubSpot down twenty percent, Workday down sixteen percent, Netsuite fifteen, Click fourteen, Demandware, which ends up getting acquired by Salesforce last week two weeks ago um it's down 13 percent. salesforce itself was down 13 percent. it was just carnage yeah also nice research <laughs> thank you uh internet um <laughs> and uh um and and so then uh for the last couple months the the share price of of linkedin has crept back up but nowhere near the highs where it once was and then two days ago monday uh in like what was got to be one of the best kept secrets of major M&A of all time. Um, Microsoft announces that they are acquiring the company for $196 per share. Um, which comes to? Which comes to $26.2 billion Crazy. total, um, which is a lot of money, well, but but, but half know. of what LinkedIn was worth, you know, a year ago. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing that I wasn't thinking about in February when... It's like there's two parts to arriving at this conclusion. And I feel like within that first week, I, I sort of understood like, oh, these companies are sort of undervalued right now because they took this huge hit and, you know, their their core business remained strong. It was just that a new business that proposed that promised huge growth didn't quite materialize. Like they're still doing $3 billion in revenue a year. And the thing that didn't occur to me at that time is, okay, these guys are on sale. And that doesn't mean on sale just to go buy the stock. That means like they're massively at a discount for somebody to acquire them. And what you got to start thinking then is like, who are key acquirers yep. where LinkedIn could be a massive asset and amplified by their existing yeah. core business. So so our job today uh, is to speculate uh, and think about <laughs> was, was, man, was this good? Was this a good move for, for Microsoft, for LinkedIn? shareholders we'll we'll find out um but i I feel like we can't we can't dive into it just yet without mentioning a super important piece of context here which is that um about a year ago a little over a year ago there were tons of rumors swirling in the market that microsoft was had made an offer to acquire salesforce yeah and i think i think it was all but confirmed like that 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 was actually you know came to the 11th hour and then fell through so the 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 rumors and these are just rumors we won't know maybe we could do a a show on this at some point but um that would be fun um the rumors were that microsoft offered somewhere between 50 and 55 billion dollars to acquire salesforce Mm -hmm. uh, a little over a year ago and salesforce was willing to talk but they wanted 70 and uh and microsoft walked away from that so Super important. And, and that played out in the press over weeks. Um, and that two things with this, both that this was completely kept quiet. Yeah. And the, the, the LOI, I think, was signed a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, Jeff Weiner in his memo to LinkedIn employees mentions that, you know, the senior management team at LinkedIn has had, quote, months to digest this, um, yeah. which is pretty amazing. And apparently it all started after after February 5th. Which says to me at Microsoft that not a lot of people knew. I mean that this was this was something that was bored Satya key executives actually a uh, friend of the show Kurt Delbeni is uh, very much involved in, in yeah. you know orchestrating how these two companies will will come together Kurt who we were lucky enough to have on for our Accompli and Wonderlist episode uh, is um, going to be leading the the uh, integration uh, for Microsoft yeah and actually the press release talks about how he's going to be doing that with. Um, Scott Guthrie, who leads Enterprise, which includes both Azure and Dynamics CRM product, and Chi Lu, which um, Chi's purview is uh, mostly kind of productivity, so the whole office suite and Bing. And so I think there's a little bit of clue there as to what they're going to do with it, probably in office and then some combination of of Azure and fueling the Dynamics product. Yeah. So, well, let's jump into um, acquisition category because I feel like this will start to start to unpack this here. What's yeah. your what's your early categorization here? Yeah, so I mean I think there's a business line from acquiring the the you know um current revenue stream um but in my mind, you know, you don't buy this product just to um cash flow it. 
Like they're they're not buying that business line because it's it's going to pay itself back and you know short order and we feel good about owning this new revenue stream. It's an integration play. So I'm I'm calling this a product acquisition since it's a product that they're going to um, amplify the current sales of with their their own kind of channel and and integrations and then make their own products uh, better and um, kind of define the future of of identity. So I would say it's a, a a product acquisition to be combined with their existing products. Yeah, I um, I'm going to take a, a a similar route, um, but I think this is really key. So so for me, I said yes, product acquisition, um, but it's a product acquisition that at least has the potential, I think, to transform and evolve an entire business line for for Microsoft. So clearly, this is uh, I mean. I, I don't know, but I would imagine this is going to be within Microsoft's business process, uh, productivity and business processes segment, um, which is one of the new segments that um, uh, Satya streamlined the company into when when he took over. Um, and uh, and and I think you know, there's so many ways angles to think about LinkedIn, but one of them that you have to imagine people at Microsoft are thinking about is as a as a data set. And a data acquisition and the ability to both operate link continue to operate LinkedIn as the set of products that it is within that segment, but then infuse that data into into Office, into Active Directory, into Dynamics, into all of the, you know, the sort of mobile first, cloud first, you know, world that Microsoft, you know, lives in now. Um, all of the business um, tools that they have, uh, you, you have to imagine is something they're thinking about. Yeah, totally. And that's a really good lead in. I, I sort of have like four buckets of, of why I think they, they pulled the trigger on this one. And that first one, you know, you just nailed is, is integration with Office 365 to extend identity outside the company. In the world of, of Microsoft, of your, they, uh, they have Active Directory. Um, Which we might want to say a word about that because I, I bet a lot of our listeners have no idea what Active yeah, Directory is. Yeah, great point. Um, so basically, Microsoft's lock-in and the enterprise comes from the fact that they own identity and everything that stems from that. So everything works seamlessly with with their, you know, or historically works seamlessly across all their products because everything is, is you know, plugs into Exchange and uses Active Directory to manage identity. And it's, it's you know, the rock-solid truth of who you are that everything in the company can plug into. Yep. So when you, as a employee at a company that uses the Microsoft Productivity Suite, you know, you sign in to your Microsoft account, and then that give, grants you access to your email, to Office 365, to whatever enterprise app, if you and In fact, use even Windows. You're, for you're, the few people out there who use Dynamics, you know, into Dynamics, uh, right. and, uh, and, and even Windows, yep. You, you can think of it as like deeply, deeply integrated single sign-on. And the nature of companies has changed. And I think that, that, that we'll, we'll talk about trends in a little bit, but I think that a big tech trend or really a big like world trend that's happened is people move around a lot. I mean, people stay at companies for 18 to 30 months and there's a lot of bouncing around and people collect knowledge from all the different companies they were at and build reputation from all the different companies that they were at. And a world that is entirely centered around, you know, who you are at this company is kind of antiquated. Yeah, and this is such a good point. Co- company, The company doesn't own your identity anymore. You own your identity and you lend your skills and reputation to the company while you're there. And some people do that yep. for a really long time, but some people don't. And you have to have a way to be able to access and leverage all that other data. Yep. And, um, you know, for Microsoft previously, which is, again, trying to reinvent everything it's doing, uh, as, as Kurt talked to us about a few months ago, you know, in this, you know, mobile first, cloud first world, like when the reality is that the majority of employees, at least in fields like tech or finance, um, you know, aren't staying in the same job for long periods of time anymore. If you as Microsoft only have these very siloed views into people and not the, the holistic view of their skills and their career history and their identity, you know, across jobs, uh, you know, there we go. Hence LinkedIn. Yeah, and the the parallel I think I should uh, that I wrote down anyways. You know, five years ago, ten years ago, we had this like IT shakeup where they were freaking out about BYOD, bring your own device, and this is the realization of BYOD when it comes to identity. Yeah, BYOE, bring your own 
employee <laughs> BYOP your own person yeah, yeah. And, um, and and you mentioned um well I was going to go into the sort of second thing so I think there's a good segue there um the second reason we kind of talked a, about um identity in office 365 there I think that it, as it extends to dynamic CRM it's hugely valuable to know an entire person's work history when you are trying to sell something to them yeah. So uh, imagining, you know, that the problem with Microsoft's worldview before is this is John Smith and he was at company A. There is also a John Smith at company B. We don't know if those are related. And, and you know, I'm sure there's like attempts to make sure they're related. But the magical thing that LinkedIn nailed is all the incentives are aligned for them to make money off of you wanting to make all of your information accurate. And so if you can have this like holistic view of identity when it comes to customers, that's incredibly valuable also. Yep. The, I agree. And I, I want to jump into with something I've been thinking about is with regards to this acquisition uh, and Ben and I were texting about this earlier. The way I think about LinkedIn is like, it's such a canonical example of like the power of a network effect mm. and the value of the asset of LinkedIn's network that they've built and, and, I'll get into this in a, in a little bit in, in tech themes, um, but if you take for a given for the moment that the uh, the network effect uh, and the the defensibility of that means that their professional network that they built basically can you know never or almost never be disrupted, and Lord knows many people have tried over the years, despite the product being really crappy and all these other things. Um, you know what can you build on top of that? And, and we talked about how LinkedIn isn't doesn't monetize via ads really you know they're sort of like they they did recruiting first that was the most obvious they nailed it like they own that industry um but then it's also really obvious like they should do like sales and biz dev and partnerships and like you know like what i use linkedin for um and probably many many of our of our listeners um and they kind of really dropped the ball there um and then you think about like man could microsoft with the linkedin network asset on top of that like really execute where LinkedIn hasn't. I think there's a big opportunity there. Yeah. And uh, Ben Thompson agrees with you. I, I pulled this quote. It, it's getting to be not a question of if, but how many times we'll mention Ben's prolific writing on the show. But uh, he has a quote in the Stratechery article about this. This is, I do believe upside is magnified significantly by Microsoft. Should LinkedIn Sales Navigator, for example, sell into 100% of Microsoft Dynamics CRM user base, a good portion of this deal would be paid for and that's just really interesting to think about is yeah. it, you, you, you raise a good point. The, the crux of the whole thing is can Microsoft leverage the network asset that link that LinkedIn has created better than they themselves have. Yeah. Have and, and, and it's it. worth a word on like on sales navigator. So this is this product that LinkedIn has put a ton of effort into, and this is their attempt to execute and capture this sort of second pillar of value on top of the network with, with sales, um, and, and lead generation. And the problem they've had is that like sales runs on the CRM. This is why Salesforce is such a valuable company. And unless you're directly plugged into the CRM, like it's really hard to, you know, add a ton of value and, and they've done a lot of integrations and you know sales navigator has had integration with salesforce and with all the other crms out there but like it's really hard to do that and and for microsoft like a they can plug it directly into dynamics which has very small market share but they also have the weight and through all the rest of the productivity suite including email the most important app for sales and many other uh many other you know professional you know, functions um and to be able to plug all of linkedin's network asset into that like huge opportunity yeah and for everybody out there that listens to um or that works at a, a company that sells to businesses salesforce has become kind of the operating system of the b2b company and if a product doesn't plug into salesforce you're not using it because that's the central repository for how all the different departments of your company um, communicate with each other and and it is the ground source of truth so I mean, that Microsoft has always been the we power productivity and we enable enterprises to be you know, the most productive and uh, efficient they can with the use of technology or through the use of technology. And that's been their, their mission for a long time, or at least one of their missions. And to see Salesforce really like etching away at that 
it, it, it's almost like to defend that turf they had to do this yeah i, I want to let ben get to his uh his other two points but i, I want to add in really quickly like yeah I have to imagine. So what's also really cool about this acquisition is, as is the theme on this show, we'll get to find out all the nitty gritty of how it happened when the SEC filings come out, when the when the deal closes. Which, which uh, they said is is this year, which likely means late December. Yeah. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that because I have to imagine that if there... There was there must have been at least one other bidder here, or the price wouldn't have gone this high, if not multiple others. But I got to imagine the other bidder was Salesforce. Has to be, and this is this is awesome. This is leading right into point three for me. Um, somebody else was going to buy them. Like that, they are on sale. There's only one LinkedIn. Like the magic of network effects makes it so that you know they were the source of truth for who, where an employer has been and what they've done and what they're good at even though their skills and endorsements thing is a little bit of a joke, they there was only one. So you couldn't go out and buy the other LinkedIn or build the other LinkedIn. It was like there was this one super valuable asset. And that's sort of an interesting M&A trend be, because of the you know network effects and technology today. Um, it, it makes them immensely more valuable and it creates these... these abs- There's certainly a bidding war here. So... When you're considering the value of this and you're Microsoft and um, you get approached by the investment banker that sort of put this together and said, hey, what do you think about this? Um, Which I I believe was Frank Quatrone. Uh, uh, again, we get, we'll get we'll fact check this, but... Um, let, let's see. I know LinkedIn was advised by... Catalyst. Yeah, Catalyst. Frank, Frank yeah. Quatrone. Cool. And Microsoft by Morgan Stanley. Yeah. Um, you got to be thinking with the hat not of, boy, is this worth you know, 25, $26 million, but more with the hat of what is the opportunity cost of it going to someone else? And what's the capital outlay that we need to make in order to not have our lunch eaten? And it, it taking a step back from that, it's sort of interesting companies more so these days than ever have to look at M&A as a competitive threat and have the means, the borrowing means or the cash on hand means to do what they need to to defend their turf against a, a massive landscape shift like this. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, let's just take as an example. Um, what if Twitter had acquired Instagram? I mean, I remember when, like, early days of Instagram, like, my primary use case for it was posting pictures to Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you totally could have seen the rationale for that to happen. Yeah. Um, like, how awful would that be for Facebook right now? Yeah, not good. Not good. The, the other interesting thing that I, I, I sort of danced into here a little bit is um, Microsoft did not pay for this in cash. And, and we haven't, this is often the case. Uh, but, well, they, they did, but they didn't do it. So, well, right, right. They did not pay for it in the cash that they carry on their balance sheet. They took out you know a, a large amount of debt because 94% of their assets are held their overseas. Their cash, yeah. I'm sorry, their cash is held overseas. And, you know, with the 40-ish percent um, tax that they would have on, on bringing that back on home. repatriating the cash. Yeah, this is a huge problem for um, all companies uh, that are multinationals and are headquartered in the U.S., but tech companies especially have yeah. a big problem with repatriating their cash. So what So what they did, um, this was not a stock deal. It was all cash uh, consideration that LinkedIn shareholders are receiving, um, but they uh, Microsoft took out debt to, to finance the transaction. Yeah. And I think not entirely. They took out like, it's, it's not, you know, $26 billion of debt, but there, it was uh, a large part of the yep. financing the transaction. So, um, yeah, you know, I think that, that getting back to David's point, it's like there was one single huge asset with network effects here. And the question is, can Microsoft, you know, squeeze more revenue out of it than LinkedIn was doing themselves? I mean, uh, will they is, uh, we will see. Uh, Can they? Answer is, in my mind, 100% yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then getting into my fourth point, this one's a little bit more broad. But um, so Microsoft has, you know, admitted that that Windows is not the future that they are not the Windows company going forward. They, of course, they, you know, large amount of people working on Windows, huge revenue stream, but it's, it's operating systems are not the solo cash cow that they once were. And I shouldn't even say operating systems. Windows is not. And so in moving to this mobile-first, cloud-first company and focusing on, um, you know, their, their cloud offering, 
as you look up and down the cloud stack, they have infrastructure as a service and platform as a service with Azure. They have software as a service with Office 365. And you could look at this like, okay, they're becoming the cloud services company. So um, a, a business tools for recruiters and, mm-hmm. and more broadly for sales and marketing also is a cloud offering that they can add to that stack of yep. services they provide. And yep. so I, th- I think like you put on your old Microsoft hat, you're like, what? are they doing and like they typically squander large m a so this is terrible it's not going to go well you put on talk to a bunch of current and former microsoft employees about this and that that is the most common reaction i I would say yeah yeah we want to thank our longtime friend of the show vanta the leading trust management platform Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. So I'm dying to get to tech themes. Um... But before we do, I think we should, I think it's worth uh, a minute spending a minute on um, the what would have happened otherwise. Uh, we talked a little bit about somebody else buying LinkedIn. I think mm-hmm. that's probably most likely. Clearly, they were on sale, as you say, in more ways than one. Um, but I think um, you know if the the other route is let's say LinkedIn and managed to stay independent. You know, they'd have a they're having a hard road executing on building another pillar um, of monetization on top of their network asset. Um, but I, I want to throw in here some uh, a bit of discussion that's come out in the press that I think is relevant um, that that somebody pointed out, and I believe there was a I believe there was a New York Times article about this. LinkedIn's stock based compensation um, has uh, grown hugely in the last few years, and it actually was becoming a real problem for them. Um, so, stock based compensation, uh, as probably many of our readers know, you know, is, is a main concept in startups, but al- also in public companies, where part of your equity package as an employee is you get a salary, but then you also get stock options mm-hmm. in the company. And um, and LinkedIn had basically over the last couple of years been giving away huge amounts of equity to employees and that dilutes uh, the existing shareholders so it's a non-cash expense um so it doesn't show up in like ebitda metrics mm. and stuff like that but um stock-based comp at, at linkedin went from 13 million a quarter in 2012 to 222 million per quarter uh in the first quarter of 2016 um and the problem there is like if you start doing that and compensating your Employees, obviously, I'm a huge believer in employee equity, but, um, you know, there's the thing about cap tables is like there's only ever 100%. Like you can't have more than 100% of the equity in the company. So anytime you give more out, you're diluting everybody. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the, the LinkedIn stock had become this sort of like leaky sieve um, that was happening. So that was a major problem that they would have had to deal with. But then now they don't. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, I think what would have happened otherwise, I, I, you know, they would have gotten sold to Salesforce. And in that case, I wonder for the future of what Microsoft is doing with Dynamics if they lose out on this deal. 
because I feel like that's a nail in the coffin for Salesforce. You mean a nail in the coffin for Dynamics? Oh, I'm sorry, for Dynamics, yeah, yeah. If, yeah. All right, let's go into let's jump into tech themes because this is, uh, man, I've I've said this to so many people over the years. Um, you know that uh, as a investor, I've been such a huge fan of LinkedIn um, and uh, continue to be. Uh, D- David, when did you buy LinkedIn stock? Uh, I bought right after the IPO, um, and then I bought a bunch more after February fifth. Um, <laughs> and the reason for that is, you know. Uh, like we've been discussing, you know, there are major challenges for the business and the company. But to me, there is so few uh, real true network effects that um, exist in technology. And LinkedIn's is so powerful. Um, I don't believe that anyone perhaps, you know, ever, ever is a long time, but any time in the foreseeable future will be able to disrupt LinkedIn. Software alone it's just software. Like it's just a commodity. Somebody will build something better. It will come along. But and LinkedIn is such the classic example. Like it looks like crap. Like let's all be honest. Like the product is really bad at this point. Hasn't Yeah, you have like 10 second page load times. Yeah, it's really, really bad. But like nobody will ever beat it. Like I will always use it. I'll use it every day because everybody I need to interact with is on it. And if I leave and go somewhere else, they're not on it. You know, so like Yeah. And the only thing like I can envision a future where People chip away in verticals and then those verticals expand, but we're a ways out from that. And the couple things I'm thinking of are, you know, um, when recruiting developers, it's very common to start on GitHub. Exactly. And then all of a sudden there's all this data that is not actually in LinkedIn that's so much more actionable. And it's like, oh, it's it just the, the mere, um, you know, breadcrumb trail that they've left from doing their work creates a much richer profile. Or you can imagine sort of the same thing on AngelList. Like it, it, it moves out from founders and VCs to employees, and then people are actually incentivized to keep their AngelList profile up to date. That proliferates yep. to other industries. Design, there's a company called Behance that Adobe bought that was doing this. Um, totally agree. If you were going to attack LinkedIn, this is the only way to do it because yeah. it's the only way where you can actually get enough critical mass. Like a network is, is of zero value until it is of critical mass value, and then it is of like completely defensible value right. um but uh but it's i really think it it would it would be a fool's errand to try and build a horizontal wide-based uh professional network at this point yeah i mean in the same way that it would be foolish to build a horizontal video hosting platform at this point or a horizontal um pure social network like i think the era of horizontal platform horizontal platforms once they have network effects applied you don't disrupt them by building another horizontal platform. And I think that, um, you yeah. know, that's, that's, that's just an interesting thing to note when you're thinking about um, starting new startups. Because I've heard so many people say, LinkedIn sucks, I'm going to try and unseat it and disrupt LinkedIn. And like, yeah, we all have our product qualms, but you're not going to do it by creating a better horizontal LinkedIn. Yep. And, and I think this plays, um, for me, at one point I want to bring up about the acquisition that... Um, plays really strongly in here is LinkedIn, like they're, they're smart guys, right? Like, uh, and, and gals, like they, they get this. Um, so what has LinkedIn been more terrified of than anything else in its history? It's people exfiltrating <laughs> the network, right? Yeah. Off of LinkedIn and, st- and stealing it out and bootstrapping it and, compa- and competing with them. And LinkedIn is famously like just iron fisted in their, uh, their terms about you know, their API limits or your ability to um, store data that you retrieve from LinkedIn. They, they, they have the most locked down, quote unquote, open API. Yeah, I've the ever API seen. is a joke. It is an utter joke. Um, and so one of the things that gets me really excited about LinkedIn being part of Microsoft um, as a uh, as a as a user, as a user of products, um, and as a um, you know, as a, as as somebody who is has a huge vested interest in innovation in the future, is man, could this mean the dawn of a real LinkedIn API? Because Microsoft has a very different set of motivations than than LinkedIn. Um, and so, so long as they keep the network effect locked, so long as they keep the network effect, but it'll also be embedded into all of Microsoft's products, right? And right. Microsoft is is also a developer facing company, and so like if they open up the LinkedIn API to, I mean, I think about like even like venture capital firms, like so many firms are building data um, 
you know, tools uh, internally for themselves uh, to be able to identify people who might be founders, great founders before they start companies, or people who might be interested in joining startups before they do, who are really talented. And you've just been totally hamstrung because you can't really use the LinkedIn API very well. Um, but if now all of a sudden you can, like, man, think about all the cool products and services they're going to be enabled enabled by that you can um i'll just caveat this with like david remember venture capitalists are a niche market <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. um but uh uh there's so many more examples too yeah good point uh should we grade it um yeah no, i think there was one. Oh, i have no, a, I have a question yeah. i want to pose to you yep um so there, it is in Microsoft's interest to integrate LinkedIn with all of their products. Keep in mind, Microsoft also owns now the LinkedIn product and has an incentive to make that revenue stream profitable. So mm-hmm. do they... Which it is, on, uh, well, without accounting for a stock-based compensation. Yep. Um, or I, I should say, as successful as possible. Do they do a bunch of Google Apps integrations also? Microsoft starts to encounter or potentially could encounter, well, it'll be interesting to see how they navigate this, the platform versus product tensions where, you know, famously they didn't want to release Office for iPad because... As you know all too well. <laughs> because it competed with the competitive advantage that that um, Surface had. Or, you know, in, in a million other ways, you know, it, Office and Windows always having tension. Do you run into a scenario here or is there a clear, um, you know, subservient product and leader product where it's nope we're not focused on growing linkedin through other people's integrations and that is a sole um you know source of value for other products at microsoft i mean i got to imagine i'll be really disappointed in microsoft and satya and kurt and everybody if if they take the the old school microsoft approach i can't shots see them fired. doing that you shots know? fired <laughs> um but i mean like you know this is this is the whole thing about, you know, Satya's leadership at Microsoft is like the way that this company becomes relevant again and and uh and an, not rele- the, an innovator again. I mean, hey, I mean some might argue relevant again. Like yeah. technology moves fast, right? It's like Ferris Bueller, you know, you <laughs> you might miss it if you don't stop and look around every once in a while. Mobile. <laughs> Mobile, yeah. Um but man, like, you know, office on iPad, like you want to be everywhere where you are. And like so if if LinkedIn, all the value that they're going to hopefully go try and create in, in, you know, bringing LinkedIn to sales and other verticals isn't on Salesforce too. Like, you know, that's a big fail for them. Yep. Um, okay. Conclusion. What do you got, Ben? Or, uh, and so we, how are we going to do this? Like this is, um, are we grading like right now the buy or are we predicting the future and thinking like, yeah, put put yourself five years from now. Was this a good purchase for this price? So, I mean, I think like today sitting here, I say this is a great buy because a year ago ish, you know, LinkedIn was worth twice this much, um, and it's this incredibly unique, incredibly defensible asset that is now part of Microsoft. So I'm like, huge thumbs up. Um, but by that rubric, you know. God, it's really just going to be like, can they execute on this? You know, mm-hmm. the opportunity is massive, but but with great, you know, with great opportunity comes great. You know, there's a lot of complexity here, and it is very difficult to do these things. Um, it's all going to come down to execution. So right right now, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it an a a minus right now, uh, just accounting for the huge amount of risk to to come in the in the execution. How are we both positive on this? I was going to give it an A. Like I, I, I woke up Monday morning being like, "What?" <laughs> and here I am. All right, but here's here's I have some a, a couple of rationales. But one is, you know, in November of 2015, the the stock price was at 255. Okay, so not quite twice as much, but right. And and they they bought it for what one 190 ish. Um, I you know I don't think the company is actually worth less. And if you look at it like it's 25 or what is it they bought it for 26 billion and it was it's a little over 3 billion in revenue so like an 8x you know yeah right. i mean like revenue. there's a, like it's, it's to actually, acquire a um very you know a sort of premier um internet and SaaS company for 7 to 8x revenue like 
those companies were trading on the public markets at 10 to 15 X revenue like a year ago, you know, before accounting for any kind of liquidity premium, you know, M&A premium. So like, yeah, great buy. Yeah. So that that's operating under the assumption that LinkedIn continued its trajectory. Um, you have the the risk that typically comes with a startup acquisition, startup, uh, any M and A thing of of uh, integration failing. I can't really consider LinkedIn a startup. No, of integration failing, and and you know there's um, the bigger the acquisition, the far the farther you can fall. And a twenty six billion dollar write down would be truly like a gut punch. And I think um, you know this co- kind of comes down to two things. I think they needed to make this acquisition or acquisitions like this because that's their future bet. Yep. They're they're this cloud services company and you know this is a a cloud service that is right in their wheelhouse delivering value to enterprises to make them more productive and efficient and do their best work possible the question is could they did they need to do large M&A to do it Um, like they they need a a product offering like this for companies Um, they weren't going to build their own LinkedIn that was going to fail miserably um you know what? What else could they possibly have done? I, I think I do have faith in this new Microsoft much more so than the Microsoft of of old days that is famous for flubbed um, flubbed M and A. Yeah. And I think when I say old days, I'll just say under Steve Ballmer. And um, you know, I think with Satya's leadership and the people, I really have a lot of faith in the people leading these integrations. And I think that, like, you know. We'll probably end up doing a follow-up episode yeah. one way or another. But well, I, and here's I'm, I'm so bullish. here's something interesting that we haven't talked about at all on this episode, but I think is really relevant. This is by far the biggest acquisition we have covered on this episode. Like the scale of this, like this. Maybe I'm just trying to do some quick math in my head, but like the value of this acquisition is approaching the combined value of all the other companies we've talked about combined. Um, Maybe slightly less, but it's like on the same, you know, it's in the right, same ballpark. We haven't done WhatsApp yet. We haven't done WhatsApp yet. So, you know, um, is linked, is Microsoft buying LinkedIn worth, uh, you know, what do we got here? Pixar, Instagram, Twitch, Bungie, Siri, Lucasfilm, YouTube, Accompli, Rightly, you know, Virgin, like, whew, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I don't think you can really look at it through that lens. You have to look at it like, what was the cost of not doing it? Yep. And I think you got to pull the trigger. Yeah. Well, um, hats off uh, for now, at least to uh, Microsoft and uh, and all our friends over there. Yeah, so. and and to and to you know folks at LinkedIn. I think yeah, the big man. the big question will be like, can these cultures mesh? Um, you know, are they going to, LinkedIn has offices all over the world, but primarily centered in Silicon Valley. Microsoft typically doesn't do well with their Silicon Valley campuses. But as we, as Kurt talked about a few months ago, like, you know, they have a new mindset when it comes to M&A of like, yeah, we don't care where you are. Like, you know, you can be in, uh, you can be Wonderlist here in Berlin. You can be a Compli, you can be in Silicon Valley. Like, doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. Just a lot of flights. Yep. Fortunately, they're close. Well, fortunately, um, you know, Alaska, Bob Virgin. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a great place to leave that. That's a great place to leave it. Should we do, do we want to do a quick carve out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, mine's super quick because I think a lot of people probably will have seen it already. But um, the code conference was uh, last week and it was bookended by Elon and, uh, and Jeff Bezos. And I haven't watched the Jeff one yet, but the Elon Musk one is so fantastic. So go watch the Elon Musk interview at the code conf. Um, he he just like has this incredible way of dancing back and forth between like total dude in a space suit that is like talking about the future in a way where you're like what is this where he, is this the one where he says uh there's like an 80 percent chance we're living in a computer simulation yeah, yeah yeah but then there's other things where like the way that he explains why the um first stage rocket lands on the drone ship it, unfortunately it blew up today but to, you know the last four have landed on the drone ship he he does a really good job of like explaining why the drone ship needs to be where it needs to be and position the ocean and, and for anybody that's sort of like into the spacex story understanding any of the physics behind that super approachable very interesting and clearly a visionary cool i i am i am grinning widely here because uh 
literally no joke was my 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 carve out was was the Bezos talk if we could. <laughs> uh, so this is great because I have not yet watched the Elon talk. So now I got to watch it, and you got to watch, and everybody listening has to watch the Bezos talk. It is fantastic. Um, you know he. Uh, Man, that guy is just awesome. Um, but uh, um, one of my a couple of quick things that I love from it, um, you know, one, you know, they ask him like, "What, uh, you know, God, there's so much going on at Amazon. Like, how do you think about this? Like, how do you think about your businesses?" And he says, "And I think about innovation." He's like, "I like to think about when I'm starting, when we're starting um, a project or something super ambitious, uh, you know, like Alexa or whatnot. Like, um, what about our customers?" isn't going to change uh you know over in the foreseeable future like um you know so much is changing so fast in technology but what are what are the like core things that are not going to change um and and also that that reminds me of linkedin you know like i sit here today like i was a linkedin happy linkedin shareholder for a long time because i just sat there and i was like i'm going to be using linkedin 20 years from now no doubt in my mind you know so anyway there we go code conference it was good this year awesome this is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com acquired. Or click the link in the show notes. Well, uh... We're leaving you. Um, I'll, I'll say one more time because I think it's probably more useful at the, the end of the episode than the beginning. Um, would love it if you could leave us a uh, uh, review on, on iTunes. And uh, if you liked it, share the episode with your friends. See ya. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.